You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining The American Revolution. Today, episode 193, The Dean Hearings. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that Silas Dean returned to America with the French fleet that arrived in July 1778. Congress had recalled him, sending a letter in December 1777 to report on the affairs in Europe. Dean had received this letter in March, and then took a few weeks to wrap up his affairs and plan his return to Philadelphia. By the time he returned, Dean had spent about two years in France. Congress had requested that he go there to serve as an advocate before the French court in March 1776. The inexperienced merchant from Connecticut took up the task without knowing a word of French or even having any personal contacts in France. Despite these limitations, Dean had managed to make personal contact with key leaders at Versailles and to begin a partnership with Pierre Beaumarchais to begin sending arms and supplies back to America. He accomplished all this despite being on his own in France for nearly a year. By the end of 1776, Congress appointed Benjamin Franklin and Arthur Lee to work with Dean in France. Together, the commissioners had not only sent shiploads of arms and supplies, dozens of French officers, but also managed to finalize two treaties with France and bring their new ally into the war with Britain. Dean's mission had been a success, and any return home should have been in triumph. That, however, was not the case. Almost since Dean's arrival in Europe, Arthur Lee waged a campaign to attack Dean's character and behavior in hopes of having Dean recalled. Arthur Lee had been living in London when the war began. He was a member of the powerful Lee family of Virginia and had two brothers sitting in the Continental Congress. His legal practice in London had helped him to establish himself as a colonial agent before the war. Lee attempted to work with Pierre Beaumarchais to get French military supplies to America once the war began. But Beaumarchais ended up forming a partnership with Silas Dean to further those same ends. That seems to have been the origin of Lee's hostility toward Dean. Lee began a covert letter-writing campaign to powerful people in America, including his two brothers in the Continental Congress, asserting that Dean was defrauding Congress by demanding payment for aid that the government of France intended to be given free of charge. This, however, was not the case. France did provide several generous loans to get the project started. However, French officials expected the assistance program to become self-sustaining as America paid back those loans with the delivery of tobacco. All of these deals were secret, of course. 
Congress only got the information about them from Dean, Lee, and Franklin. Since the commissioners were sending back contradictory reports, Congress wasn't sure who to believe, and Congress, always desperate for cash, was receptive to accusations that one of its agents was unjustly enriching himself in these secret agreements. Dean's other problem was that he lacked political allies in Congress. Dean had actually been a member of the Continental Congress before his appointment. At the time of his appointment, the members of the secret committee who entrusted him with the mission to France were Benjamin Franklin, John Dickinson, Benjamin Harrison, Thomas Johnson, John Jay, and Robert Morris. Franklin, of course, had left Congress to serve alongside Dean in France. Franklin still supported Dean, but was no longer in Congress to be his advocate there. John Dickinson famously left Congress shortly after passage of the Declaration of Independence. He took a commission in the Army, but his opposition to independence in Congress and his expressed doubts about the war effort had damaged his reputation. By 1778, he was living as a private citizen in Delaware. Benjamin Harrison had left Congress shortly after passage of the proposed Articles of Confederation. Harrison had opposed equal representation, which had left a large state like Virginia greatly underrepresented. He had also opposed General Washington over the appointment of Lafayette to a command position. He had engendered the anger of many radicals by supporting the rights of Quakers to avoid compulsory military service. And as a result of all this, he had resigned his seat and returned to Virginia. Thomas Johnson had left Congress and was by this time governor of Maryland. John Jay had left to become Chief Justice of the New York Supreme Court. The only member of that secret committee that was still in Congress that had supported Dean at the beginning was Robert Morris. Even Morris had been on a leave of absence at the time Congress recalled Dean. However, he had returned by May 1778, but Morris was no ally of Dean. Morris had secured the appointment of his half-brother, Thomas Morris, as an American agent in France. Thomas was supposed to deal with prize ships that were captured and other financial matters. Unfortunately, Thomas did not share his brother's business acumen or attention to duty. Thomas Morris spent most of his time in France drinking and partying. Dean had reported this behavior to Congress. While Congress was trying to sort out this mess, Thomas Morris fell ill and died in January 1778 at the age of 26. Robert Morris took great offense, in part not believing the accusations that Dean levied against his brother, and also that Dean had made the issue public to Congress rather than writing to Morris privately. The result was that Morris was hostile to Dean and Franklin at the time. Arthur Lee had levied charges against both Dean and Franklin, but Franklin was seen as a success in France and still had many supporters in Congress. Because of this, Dean, rather than Franklin, became the primary focus of concern. So, after two years abroad, without any support among the delegates in Philadelphia, Congress recalled Dean to answer questions about the accusations against him. Now, in their letter to Dean, Congress did not mention the charges of financial mismanagement and fraud. Instead, Dean simply received a letter saying he was being recalled for consultation about the situation in Europe. 
Dean was savvy enough to realize that this was more than just fact-finding, that Congress would not be recalling him unless they had reason to question his performance. However, he had no idea what the details of those questions would be. So, before he left France, Dean consulted with Franklin, with Beaumarchais, and with Vergen about his recall and let everyone know that he was returning to Philadelphia. Franklin's letter to Congress gives the best description of what Dean did or didn't know about this situation. Franklin gave Dean this letter dated March 31, 1778, to pass along to the President of Congress. The letter says in part, My colleague, Mr. Dean, is being recalled by Congress, and no reasons given that yet appeared here. It is apprehended to be the effect of some misrepresentations from an enemy or two in Paris and at Nantes. I have no doubt that he will be able clearly to justify himself, but having lived intimately with him for more than fifteen months, the greatest part of the time in the same house, and a constant witness of his public conduct, I cannot avoid giving this testimony, though unasked, that I esteem him as a faithful, active, and able minister, who to my knowledge has done in various ways great and important services to his country, whose interests I wish may always by everyone in her employ be as much and as efficiently promoted. Also, after discussing the matter with Dean, French agent Pierre Beaumarchais wrote a blistering confidential memo for the French foreign ministry, critical of Lee's attacks on Dean. Quote, By character and by ambition, Mr. Arthur Lee was first jealous of Mr. Dean. He finished by becoming his enemy, which always happens to small minds more occupied in supplanting their rivals than in surpassing them in merit. The connections of Mr. Lee in England and two brothers whom he has in Congress have made him recently an important and dangerous man. His plan has always been to prefer between France and England the power which would most surely bring him to fortune. England has some advantages for him. He has often explained himself on the subject in his libertine suppers. But to succeed, it was necessary to get rid of a colleague so formidable by his patriotism as Mr. Dean. This he has accomplished by causing him to be suspected in several points of view by Congress. Beaumarchais' memo went on to outline Lee's attacks on Dean's appointment of French officers and Lee's accusation that the covert military aid was a gift from France, not a sale. Beaumarchais concludes his report by noting, quote, Today, Mr. Dean, loaded with grief, finds himself suddenly and harshly recalled. He is ordered to go to give an account of his conduct and to justify himself from many faults which they do not designate. Also expressing support for Dean, Foreign Minister Vergen sent a letter to Dean in late March attesting to France's appreciation of his work as a diplomat. In part, it read, quote, The king, desirous of giving you a personal testimony of his satisfaction with your conduct, has charged me to inform Monsieur the President of Congress of it. This is the object of the letters which Monsieur Girard will deliver you for Mr. Hancock. 
he will also deliver you a box with a portrait of the king. The box, which was a gift to Dean, included a portrait of the king that was made of gold and encrusted with diamonds, a show of gratitude and support for Dean's service in France. Further, the King of France directed that Dean be a guest aboard the French fleet that would sail to America, along with the new French minister to America, Conrad Alexandre Derard. In the view of everyone in the French government, of Delegate Franklin, and of Dean personally, he should have been returning to America in success. He had secured the French alliance, sent many successful officers, and had been the source of much-needed military aid over the previous years. Upon his arrival in Philadelphia in July 1778, Dean met with President Henry Lawrence. Lawrence was cordial and congratulated Dean on his many successes, and Dean made clear he was eager to make his reports to Congress and return to France and continue his diplomatic work. Congress, however, was in no hurry. Dean sat in Philadelphia for over a month, waiting for an audience with Congress. He finally received orders to appear several times in mid-August. Then, again, nothing. Finally, on September 8th, Dean wrote that he was growing impatient, and that if Congress did not want to hear from him further, he would like to return to France. Ten days later, a congressional committee reported that Arthur Lee and Ralph Izzard had accused Dean of financial mismanagement and misappropriation of public money. It began calling witnesses to testify to these charges, but it did not call Dean. Shortly after that, Connecticut delegate Titus Hosmer, who had been in Congress for only a few months and who was returning home, informed Dean that he overheard other delegates who said they sought to destroy Dean. Since they had no evidence, they did not want to bring specific charges against him. Instead, they would simply drag out the matter and allow the cloud of accusation to hang over Dean's head for as long as possible. Again, Dean wrote to Congress, asking for the charges against him and to see the letters of his accusers so that he could respond. He said that after spending more than three months in Philadelphia, he needed to get back to France to manage his financial affairs there. Dean never did get to see the letters accusing him of anything, but he did learn about some of the accusations secondhand. Lee had accused Dean of giving offense to everyone he worked with in France. Now, there's no doubt that Dean offended Lee, but few others seemed to be offended. Dean argued that his success spoke for itself. Dean noted that in 1777, he had shipped 30,000 small arms, a similar number of uniforms, over 250 pieces of brass artillery, and numerous other supplies that were critical to the cause and which had been vital to opposing the Burgoyne campaign. There were also all those letters of support from Franklin and various French officials, which Dean had delivered to Congress. Lee had also made some minor accusations, like that Dean had opened and read all of Lee's correspondence, which Dean simply denied. Lee accused Dean of leaving him out of negotiations, to which Dean responded that Lee was too querulous and that they did not always trust him with confidential matters under negotiation. The more significant charge was that Congress had spent millions, but that almost everything sent to America still had to be paid for. The obvious implication was that Dean had used that money for other purposes, 
and that Congress would still have to repay all of those loans. Dean could deny those charges generally, but all of his financial records were still in France. He had no idea that he would be called to answer these specific charges and had left the financial records with his associates, who were still trying to continue these business dealings with France. Instead, Dean had to cool his heels in Philadelphia, living at his own expense, waiting for Congress to continue its investigation. Meanwhile, back in France, Arthur Lee, having successfully removed Dean from Europe, turned his attention toward Franklin. Lee continued to write to Congress about how Dean was guilty of all sorts of financial crimes, that he had grown rich on embezzling government money, and that his calls for a hearing were all just a bluff. He also wrote that Franklin was similarly guilty of wasting government funds and supporting his lavish lifestyle. Congress was still receptive to Lee's accusations. At one point, they came within one vote of voting to recall Franklin from France as well. As I said, Lee wanted to remove both of his fellow commissioners so that he could take full control of the American delegation in France. One of Dean's greatest offenders was French Minister Girard. Girard was concerned about openly supporting one political faction against another in America. After all, his job was to maintain good relations between France and America, regardless of who was in charge in Philadelphia. But Girard did speak with delegates when he could, defending both the motivations and actions of Franklin and Dean. In a letter to Vergen, Girard wrote, quote, the stories of Arthur Lee are but an absurd tissue of falsehoods and sarcasm, which can only compromise those who have the misfortune of being obliged to have anything to do with him. Despite all this support, the Dean hearings dragged on. By December, Dean had grown increasingly frustrated with Congress. He had left Europe in a hurry, expecting to be gone only a few months. He had left many matters incomplete in France. He had even left his 13-year-old son there in the care of others. After spending nine months waiting for Congress to decide anything about his case, he wrote a public letter outlining his situation, attacking Arthur Lee and Lee's political allies, and which was generally highly critical of Congress. This public revelation of the infighting between the American commissioners and the internal disputes within Congress set off a political firestorm. Virginia delegate Francis Lightfoot Lee responded in the press to defend his brother Arthur Lee. This led to follow-up articles by Dean. Then, a couple of weeks later, Thomas Paine entered the fray. Paine issued a series of articles just savaging Dean. His first article primarily criticized Dean for making the whole matter public and revealing divisions among the Continental leadership. That, Paine believed, damaged the war effort and the Patriot cause generally. Over the next few weeks and months, Payne published articles attacking Dean for his failure to bring his financial records with him and for what Payne seemed to believe were unsubstantiated attacks on Arthur and William Lee. Payne strongly implied that Dean was corrupt, or at least hopelessly naive, in the way he managed affairs in Europe. Payne's attacks largely reflected the views of a faction, possibly a majority of Congress, who distrusted Dean and thought that his publicizing of this dispute only made things worse. Over the winter, 
as articles raged back and forth, Dean remained in Philadelphia without Congress making any effort to continue its investigation or hold hearings. In April, and then again in May of 1779, more than a year after Congress first recalled him, Dean wrote to Congress to say that he planned to depart the city. He wrote to the President of Congress that, quote, It was the design of those who wished to sacrifice me to family interests to wear me out by delays without any direct charges to ruin me in the opinion of my countrymen by insincere hints and innuendos. Upon receiving the letter, President Lawrence's comment was only that, quote, if Dean goes in defiance of Congress, it will be a confession. Finally, in August of 1779, Congress discharged Dean from further attendance and requested that all commissioners submit their accounts and vouchers for final settlement. Congress reached absolutely no ruling on the charges against Dean or anything else. It was simply announcing that the investigation had ended. Congress finally offered to pay for his costs for the more than a year that Dean had remained in Philadelphia, but the amount they offered was so small and to be paid in nearly worthless continental paper dollars that a disgusted Dean refused to accept the payment entirely. Perhaps one small victory for Dean was that Robert Morris once again supported him. Morris, upon receiving the full information about his brother Thomas's failures in Europe, accepted that Dean had only been trying to resolve a problem, not attack him politically. Morris commented that Dean had rendered essential services for his country and that he had been, quote, ill-used by his enemies. In a letter after everything had ended, Morris wrote, quote, I consider Dean to be a martyr in the cause of America, and that the attacks on him were, quote, shameful. Dean finally did return to France in 1780, where Franklin greeted him as a friend. Dean returned, though, as a private citizen. Having made so many enemies in Congress, he would not receive another appointment to anything. French officials also received him warmly in appreciation of his past service. At that point, Dean was also reunited with his son Jesse, by this time a young man of 16. Dean was also heartened to learn that just weeks before his arrival in France, that Arthur Lee had departed for America to be called to account for his own activities while abroad. Even with the matter behind him, though, Dean would carry a resentment toward Congress for the rest of his life. His experience also left him with serious doubts that the American cause would succeed when led by conspiring politicians with whom he had interacted during his time in Philadelphia. Next week, the French and British fleets have their first major encounters at the Battle of Ushant. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs. 
eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks, as always, to Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Also thanks to Kurt Avard, author of the book First Do No Harm, for his support at the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. I also want to give thanks to Jason Petrie for his longtime continuing support on Patreon, and also for the one-time gift from Farron Shear via Venmo. Everyone who can help chip in even a few dollars helps keep this podcast freely available for those who cannot. Because of the growing popularity of this podcast, I've actually been getting some offers to dump lots of annoying commercials into the show to help monetize it. I do occasionally run an ad for products that I really like, such as the one I'm running currently for Liberty & Co., which I record myself. But I've done my best to resist those repetitive, crass commercial jingles that I find so annoying on other podcasts. I've been able to do that so far because of generous support from listeners who have stepped up and believe in the value of this podcast. If donations continue to grow, I can hopefully continue to avoid stuffing this podcast with commercials. Also, many other podcasts put some of their episodes behind donor-only paywalls to encourage more donations. Now, that's also something I've avoided. I really want to keep everything available to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay. So this really makes your donations so much more meaningful. So please, if you can't afford to give even a small monthly amount or a one-time gift, it really helps me to stay on that path. Another milestone this week, the podcast crossed 2 million downloads. It took nearly three years to reach the first million, and just over 10 months to reach the second million. So please tell your friends and share this podcast so we can cross that 3 million mark before the end of this year. Thanks, of course, to everyone who has listened, and especially those who have been kind enough to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are reviewed. This week, I covered the Silas Dean hearings. Normally, I like to cover events from a particular time, which usually only spans a few days or weeks. The Dean hearings dragged on for well over a year, so I had to go well beyond the timeline that this podcast is currently on. But I thought it was important to cover the events as they dragged out. To this day, many people think Silas Dean's reputation still has kind of a taint to it, thanks mostly to these inconclusive investigations. My personal view, which probably came out in the main show, is that Silas Dean was a patriot who provided an invaluable service and got screwed by Congress. The man who screwed him primarily was Arthur Lee, supported by his brothers Richard Henry Lee and Francis Lightfoot Lee, as well as their allies in Congress. My view of Thomas Paine, who served as the Lee's attack dog in the press, also diminished in my mind as a result of his involvement in this event. Paine's radical views can be dangerous in any revolution. It can lead to the revolution turning on its own for no good reason. It's something that Paine himself would experience in very real terms 
later in his life during the French Revolution. Silestine remained in Europe for the rest of his life. He moved to Belgium because he could not afford to stay in Paris. After the British intercepted and published some letters home where he expressed pessimism about the American cause later in the war, his reputation in America tanked even further. But given the way he was treated, I think his negative views about Congress were understandable. After the war, Dean moved to London. After revelations that he had met with his fellow Connecticut expat, General Benedict Arnold, his reputation in America sank to even new lows. Finally, in 1789, Dean set out to return to America to seek vindication. He died aboard ship only hours after it left port. Many suspect that he was poisoned, but nothing was ever proven. More than 50 years after his death, Dean's heirs finally settled with Congress for just a portion of what they owed him for his service as a diplomat. It was a sad end for a man who was critical to the forming of the French alliance. If you want to read more about Silas Dean, my book recommendation this week is Silas Dean, Revolutionary War Diplomat and Politician by Milton C. Van Vlack. The book shares my view that Dean is a hero of the revolution and unjustly maligned. It gives a good account of his life and the events that lead up to his eventual fall from grace. Now, this book was not exactly a bestseller. It went straight to paperback. It's also less than 200 pages, not counting notes and index. But I think it's an interesting look at Dean's life. It may be hard to find at this point, but it is worth reading. And there's a Kindle version if you cannot find it in paper. The author, Mr. Van Vlack, was a longtime high school history teacher in Dean's home state of Connecticut. He published his book in 2013 after he retired. Sadly, Mr. Van Vlack passed away three years later in 2016. There's also a number of other good books related to Dean that are in the public domain and freely available on archive.org. If you go to my blog entry for this episode, you can find a list of them. The one I'm recommending this week, well, actually two, is The Diplomatic Correspondence of the American Revolution, Volume 1, Silas Dean's Correspondence, edited by Jared Sparks and published in 1829. As you might guess from the title, the book contains Dean's actual letters. The other book I want to mention is Volume 2 of this same series. That one contains the diplomatic correspondence of Arthur Lee, which gives the other point of view in the controversies between these two men. I've included links to both volumes in my recommendation links. I also wanted to mention the editor of both of these volumes, Jared Sparks, was president of Harvard University in the early 19th century. If you're not familiar with him, Sparks was probably best known for his 12-volume work on the writings of George Washington. He oversaw the collection and production of many other important works related to figures from the American Revolution, and much of his work forms the foundation of all subsequent research on the topic. Of course, as always, you can search for my online recommendations on archive.org or just use the direct links on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.
History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.